Welcome back to The Russians. Uh, I'm Yasha Levine. Hi, I'm Yevgenia Kovda. And uh, <clears throat> today we uh, have a really uh, amazing guest for you, um, Alexei Yurchak, who's a professor at anthropology at UC Berkeley. Um, f- you know, for people who do know him, he's probably best known for his book about, um, about late Soviet society. Uh, the book's called Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. Um, and it's about how towards the end uh, of the Soviet Union, no one really believed that the no one really believed in the Soviet system anymore or the ideology that underpinned it, and yet no one could really imagine an alternative. And people thought that it would remain in place forever. I mean, it's a really great book, and um, in it he coined this term called hypernormalization, um, a concept around which actually Adam Curtis built one of his more recent documentaries around, in which he of course called hypernormalization. Um, so uh, if you've heard the term. Uh, Alexei is, is the one who coined it in, the, in, in his book, and I highly recommend to read that book. Um, and Alexei is working on a new book uh, now uh, about the preservation and deification of Lenin's body and the secretive laboratory that has carried out this work of preserving and sort of propping up uh, Lenin <laughs> physically um, for almost a century. Uh, and so we're probably we're going to focus more on uh, this more recent work um, about Lenin that Yurchak is doing, and it's it's a really interesting line of inquiry because, uh, well, it's it seems kind of uh, obscure and, and maybe esoteric, but it's ultimately we think is very relevant to what's going on in Russia politically today, and politically and ideologically. So, um, thank you for yeah. joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Did we get all everything correct? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean. Uh, yeah, we can clarify things during the conversation. Perfect, thanks. Yeah, so Jen, do you think you want to get the get it going? Sure, yeah, let's just get right into it. Um, I discovered your um, paper. Um, I, I didn't know that you're actually now writing a book or finishing the book based on it. Your paper that's called Bodies of Lenin, the Hidden Science of Communist Sovereignty. And uh, yeah, and I found it fascinating. But I, I guess my first question would be just how, because you've been working it for, for quite a while and been interested in the subject, how did you initially get get into it, considering also how secretive the whole um, lab and the whole process is? Right. Um, so uh, I was always interested to write a history, uh, kind of a, and a political philosophy and history of the whole Soviet project and to look at it through the eyes of an anthropologist who is doing the historical work. And... Um, so my previous book, which you mentioned, Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, The Last Soviet Generation, I looked at the late period of the Soviet Union. And the question there was um, why the collapse was so unexpected. And when it happened, it, it was so uh, retrospectively experienced as something which totally made sense to everyone. And yet, it, it, until it happened, it was unexpected. So I used that as a prism through which to look back at the last few decades of Soviet history. But I didn't look at the whole period. I looked at the period from Stalin on. Of course, there were some things which I wrote about the earlier period as well, because you cannot study a period without contrasting it with something before. There's a genealogical link between them. But um, one thing which I discovered, which I already knew to some extent, but discovered even more during writing, doing research for the book and writing it, was that the figure of Lenin occupied a very particular political place, uh, within the Soviet political system, a place which in political philosophy uh, 
can be identified as that of the sovereign. It's a place external to the actual social political world. Uh, external in the sense, at least, well, partially external, that the language of that system cannot question that figure, right? Um, no, no political speech or uh, film or piece of writing or lecture uh, book could uh, question Lenin. Lenin was, by definition, um, the kind of the locus of truth. That's the voice in which truth was articulated. And, and every publication and statement in the Soviet Union had to refer to Lenin explicitly or implicitly to legitimate itself. And um, if you think about the Soviet history as a whole, every single political leader after, after Lenin was eventually criticized by uh, the um, followers, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, and smaller ones. But Lenin could not be. And in fact, the criticism of those figures, for example, destalinization, right, when Stalin was uh, accused of this uh, crimes against humanity and uh, violation of the whole communist project, uh, they were done in the, uh, they were articulated as violations of Leninism. And uh, the party and the system managed to reinvent itself. It wouldn't collapse. It managed to reinvent itself by claiming that now it was returning to true Lenin, mm-hmm. uh, which Stalin distorted, or which Khrushchev distorted. And so, um, g- going back to what I said originally, uh, uh, th- that figure, the figure of Lenin, occupied this place which was external to the system where truth was located. And uh, so, um, I realized that uh, to write that history of the Soviet Union with that figure in mind, and mind you, I I want to quickly add um, uh, that this is not unique to the Soviet system. This um, reliance on on a certain external truth is actually a common feature of any political system. You think about the United States with its founding fathers and the Constitution. uh, There are certain truths which are taken for granted, and they Mm -hmm. cannot be questioned in political language. They have to be there before the political language can be formulated in the first place, right? It, it has to rely on something which is external to it. So, um, I mean, there are differences between these political systems, but that yeah. aspect of it is similar. So, um, Sorry, just a, a quick question regarding this Lenin as a sovereign, kind of infallible sovereign uh, figure. Um, yeah, yeah. Do, do you feel it's, I mean, it sort of became possible just because he got sick early on and ultimately didn't actually get to to rule or become one of the real general secretaries for for too long to be tarnished like everyone else in a way and uh, so just his short kind of political engagement after the revolution uh, made it possible right that he yeah he just remained somehow pure because of that i mean uh, we may say that as a kind of a hypothesis but it's not necessarily the case Uh, i would not have this kind of uh, what we may call a more cynical view of Soviet history. I think that Lenin actually was different from Stalin. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a way, you can also argue, uh, which would be a different kind of hypothesis to what you just formulated, that uh, what happened after Lenin uh, was a distortion of some of the designs which he had. Because mm-hmm. he, um, I mean, at the end of his life, he was introducing this workers and peasants commissions, which were uh, an attempt to curtailed the uh, power of the Central Committee. He was actually very critical of what was happening to the party, this 
acidification and uh, the, the, the emergence of the new nomenclatura which was happening around him in the early 20s. Mm-hmm. So you can also say that he uh, didn't want the kind of system which emerged afterwards. Mm-hmm. So in sense, his he uh, occupied that place which we just discussed, not simply because he didn't rule long enough and therefore didn't fall prey to the same fate as the other ones later on, but also probably because he was different. Well, mm-hmm. at least that's a possible line of argument. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, we don't know for sure how this history would, would have developed, but I, I would not necessarily take a, a more cynical view. Mm-hmm. It, it just happened so that he was ill and therefore he was clear of all the things which happened to all of them automatically. I don't think it's necessarily the case. Okay. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense. I mean, because because when in your in your, in your you know in your uh, paper, uh, you know you you explain how essentially you know everything that Lenin did or, or wrote you know was always after he died or even before he died in the years uh, in a sickness when he there became kind of almost like a, a, you know an, another kind of abstract body of Lenin, right? Which is there was, they, they created out of the living Lenin who was sick, they create, started creating an artificial mythologized Lenin even before he died. And so it doesn't really matter what you did in, in, in your actually like life, you know, later on a cult of personality could be built around you and the facts about your life and deeds can be distorted and they basically were distorted, continually rewritten or censored or sort of like, uh, as you write in your paper. So, I mean, I, it makes sense that it's, I mean, I, I probably would, you know, weigh in on the, the the sense that like it's not about what you did, but how the people who follow you and are in power after you manipulate your memory, right? Um, and manipulate what you did. And yeah, yeah. Um, maybe I will go back to the first question, like how I got interested in, in the body and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, in what uh, Yasha just said into that uh, answer, which I didn't quite finish. So. Um, yeah, on, to one extent, you can say that uh, it's not about what you said, but how people manipulated it later, but not completely. I mean, uh, what Lenin uh, was used, what kind of Lenin's statement and, and uh, Lenin's ideas were used in Soviet history was not completely manipulated and constructed later. Mm-hmm. It had to be based in the real Lenin's texts. So it had to be both manipulated and at the same time, to some extent, it had to remain real. You could not completely write an imaginary book, which Lenin supposedly authored, but he never did, and Stalin just published a book which was fake Lenin. That wouldn't work. So it had to be always based on real texts. Mm-hmm. But then those texts could be quoted out of context, some uh, phraseology could be omitted, certain things could be attributed to Lenin if he co-authored it with Kamenev, for example, the second author could be erased, and so forth. So the manipulation happened, but it happened always within certain frame, right? It, it couldn't happen. Um, completely at random. <clears throat> it had always to be linked back to the real figure and to the real words. So um, that is that actually brings me back to the body because uh, what I realize is, is that, that that figure, which I said was located outside that place of the sovereign, it was a combination of real linen and constructed linen. It was never just constructed and it was never completely real. It was mm-hmm. a combination of the two. And the same is true about all the representations of Lenin in Soviet history, all the visuals. For example, all the early sculptures and uh, statues which were made in the 20s, 30s, even 40s, had to be based on Lenin's death masks. So they had to be this direct link to his physical material body. 
Um, and um, all the pictures, all the drawings uh, by artists like Brodsky uh, had to be based on photographs, on a mm-hmm. certain number of approved photographs. <laughs> Again, an attempt, at least an attempt, to link to the actual physicality. To the material body and the same goes about the body itself when they preserved the body which was not an inevitable event it uh, they some of them wanted it some didn't but when they did uh, the body was kind of a combination of the real corpse of of Lenin which was not allowed to decompose at all right and because it was not allowed it was also constantly constructed and reconstructed with new materials it's impossible to say, it, it, it would be wrong rather to say that this body is uh, uh, not real, Lenin's body is simply a construct, as some people argue, because mm-hmm. it is real. And it's impossible to say that this is a real corpse either, because it is not allowed to undergo the fate of a real corpse by kind of manipulations which are attributed to it, to which it is subjected, which make it a little bit different from the body, and more and more so with time. So it's a combination of real body and the, what I call effigy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all very interesting because it becomes then clear that this is indeed the, this sovereign figure, because the sovereign figure in different historical and cultural contexts around the world is always a combination of something which is uh, um, invest, which is the body of the real ruler and the body of an abstract ruler who survives the death of any concrete figure and it then gets uh, re-embodied in the figure of the next ruler, right? Yeah. Uh, just to articulate it maybe more clearly, the uh, sovereignty as a, the figure of the sovereign in the abstract survives the, the demise of any concrete person who occupies that position temporarily. Right, uh, each king, each president, each uh, ruler uh, dies and then is replaced by the next one, and reoccupies that position. So there is this abstract figure of the sovereign which is eternal, and there is also a concrete figure of the sovereign which is uh, mortal. And so the figure of the sovereign always is a combination of the two. And the same is true about Lenin's body. Uh, you can actually see that duality being reflected in the body itself. Which is why I thought it's really interesting to actually write about this body from a new perspective. Because, you know, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of texts about Lenin's body. Political theory, uh, cultural studies, journalism, and no one ever analyzed what actually is going on to that body. They just look at it, they go to the mausoleum, they look at it, and then they write this symbolic analysis. (laughs) But I thought, you know what, you need to actually go to the lab and see what they do, what they are allowed to do or not allowed to do to this body, how the science, allowed is not even the right word, how the science evolved and -hmm. what kind of principles it follows and what kind of a body it is actually maintaining. Um, Because it, it does add a lot of materials to the body, but not necessarily all kinds of materials and not necessarily to all kinds of parts of the body. And all of that really matters if you want to understand uh, the political role this body occupies. Right. And that doesn't necessarily have to be understood by the scientists. They, they, you know, they already work within the parameters of that scientific project, so they don't need to think about it politically. Of course. But the way the project got shaped was politically defined, and that's what I was trying to understand. Yeah. So it, it became kind of a prism through which I wanted to look at the Soviet history as a whole. That became a very interesting prism. Just like in the previous book, for me, the prism was 
the collapse is unexpected, and yet when it happens, everyone like, well, of course, how could it have been different? But then no one expected it until that moment. That's an interesting prism through which to look at the previous period. No, it's it's actually, it's incredible. I mean, it's actually an incredible opportunity uh, because, you know, I mean, because Lenin is, is interesting because not only is he this, you know, central figure in the Russian Revolution and just in, in, in the development of Russian history in general, but but he also wrote a lot, right? So he has this huge body of text that's that that can be quoted. And so, you know, like for instance, if I don't know, you can compare. You can you you brought up the the American you know American Revolution and the founding fathers. You know, they also wrote a lot. There were a lot of debates around, um, you know, what kind of country, uh, how to construct the country, on what foundation and what legal foundation it should be it should be built. And you know, in America, the founding fathers are you know again they're deified, but also what they wrote. And there's a lot of what they wrote is always, you know, again, weaponized or instrumentalized um, in whatever the current political debate is, right, or whatever, whatever the political fight is. And so so you can, like, look at the at sort of the dead body of their text, right, and how it's constantly being modified and, and, and taken out of context or sort of, like, played with, right? Um, mm-hmm. to, to, but then what, 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 what's amazing about Lenin is that not only does he have the texts that, you know, the same thing is done to his text, right, it, or was done to his text in the Soviet Union, but also there's almost like this mirror image of the body, you know, that's also the, the mm-hmm. same kind of thing is being done to it, you know, on, on some level. And so it's, a, yeah, it's such a perfect... Um, I mean, a much more exciting way of looking at Lenin and 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 just and, and the underpinning of, of yeah of this just through the, his body because his body is physical. It's also a very macabre kind of situation. I mean, you're literally you know um, dealing with a, a corpse, you know, um, and 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 and, uh, and so yeah, it's an it's an incredible opportunity, and I'm, and it's amazing that no one's you know no one's yeah done it before. No you. one's thought of this. Right. You know, it's like the most. It, it, in hindsight, it seems so obvious, but it, none of these things obviously seem obvious. So it's 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 a, such a perfect it's such a perfect way to look at it. I wouldn't necessarily say that no one thought about it before. Just to be fair to my colleagues, I think it's uh, what you suggested in your question earlier. It's indeed very difficult to actually get to this lab mm-hmm. because it's very closed, right? Yes, and especially you know in the late Soviet and post-Soviet period, it became very secretive. Um, and, uh, you know, when I started this project, I was told continuously by all sorts of contacts which I was getting uh, and was finding that you will never be able to talk to the scientists. They will just never, you know, sorry, it's impossible to, to, to do this. You know? But Why? I, I Why? guess to some extent, anth- anth- because they don't want to talk. <clears throat> they don't want to talk about their work. If I remember correctly, I think at some point some like Russian TV team got to them and then ridiculed them. Is that that? Well, that's partly that, yeah. I should then say, I should start a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. in the early Soviet period, uh, up until the 40s, so in the first 20 years, let's say 25 years of the lab, it wasn't so secretive. There were, in fact, um, articles written about the embalmers. They were national heroes. They were decorated <laughs> with all sorts of awards. Amazing. The, you know, the yeah. yeah, because they were, um, they were doing something important. And I should also say that all the major scientists in the lab uh, from the beginning until today, they are not simply employed in this lab. They also work in other institutes. They are famous anatomists, biochemists, surgeons, who have uh, all sorts of other projects uh, in which they're involved. And they work, uh, they head departments and institutes. So for them, the lab, to some extent, is a part-time occupation. 
um, the institute around the lab has some of the junior researchers who are only employed there, but mm -hmm. the main scientists who do this work, both practical and research kind of work, they are actually not only lab scientists. And this is why uh, they were always much more public figures. And they actually, you know, like for example, Professor Lepuhin, with whom I spoke a lot about this project eventually, who became like one of my main uh, entrance points into the lab. He uh, is, well, he died recently. He was known uh, for being the uh, kind of the person together with Petrovsky who uh, created the Soviet uh, system of kidney transplantation mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1960s, for, for which he was... Uh, you know, highly decorated, and it, it was an incredibly sophisticated procedure. He was a surgeon. And also he is known for detoxification work, you know, for people who get poisoned by different types of poison, and then uh, you, you, you can purify their blood and so forth. Very important work for all sorts of professionals, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also radiation disease. So he was actually involved in highly sophisticated medicine, and he invented a lot. And he ran very important projects. Uh, in addition to that, he also worked in the lab. Some of the work in the lab and those other projects became connected to each other, but most of the projects were not connected to the lab in any way. He was just doing both. But as uh, maybe jumping too fast, going back to the past again, mm -hmm. uh, from the beginning, all the major scientists were public figures. They were well known, partly because of their general work and partly because of their work in the lab. It was considered to be an important breakthrough of Soviet science. Uh, Zbarsky, one of the two original bombers, actually published a book called Lenin's Mausoleum, Mausoleum Lenina, where he explained the embalming procedure relatively in relatively uh, uh, exact detail. Not you know, not too much, but nevertheless, for the general public, it was much more than what we can find today. Mm -hmm. But then after the 50s, it all changed. Uh, and I can, maybe later, if you're interested, can talk about why that change happened. But so eventually it became much more close and secretive. Can I actually, can I just interrupt you for one second? Because I actually just, I have just an interesting point about the, the earlier openness of, about, you know, about mm -hmm. the, the process. And was it, was it tied to, you know, because obviously, you know, the, the Soviet Union, put a lot of weight behind, you know, technological progress and science and scientific achievement, right? This is a big, this is a, a big part of, 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 of Soviet, Soviet sort of, I don't know, ideology and, and celebration of, of what, it, what can be done um, under communism. And so was it connected to, because, you know, I would think that like, just if I didn't going into it and not knowing anything about it, I would think that, you know, because Lenin was ultimately deified and created into this, into this, into this kind of almost like godlike persona, um, you know that, like the the process around the the embalming and the preservation, right, the, uh, would be would be kind of held tightly even in the very beginning, um, because just to not sully, you know, the nature of this of this of this almost godlike figure, right? But it, but what you're saying is that it was actually much more open in the beginning, and people were, you know, there were there were articles in, in newspapers about all these techniques. So was it were these things connected? I mean, do you recall coming across that, um, in, you know, in in your research, whether or not like Look, we can even you know look look how great you know the Soviet sciences. We can even preserve the, this body you know indefinitely, and look at the technological achievements that we're making here. Was there any kind of rhetoric around that? Well, uh, I should actually answer both of your points here together, because you uh, asked about whether 
this openness, more relative openness, was connected to the celebration of the Soviet science under under the socialist system. And the other point was that Lenin was deified and the godlike figure, you said. So I would answer both of those together, and I would actually resist the second point. Mm-hmm. I don't think Lenin was deified. I don't think this reference to Lenin as a godlike figure is correct. I think this whole rhetoric about you know Leninism being a kind of a new religion, a communism being a new religion, there's a fair amount of political work written about it in those terms. I think it's completely wrong. That's my opinion. And um, if we do, I mean, we should actually acknowledge, of course, that uh, all modern political concepts are genealogically linked to religious concepts. You know, Carl Schmitt wrote about it. Uh, but that's true about all systems. It's true yeah. about the American system. It's true about the uh, liberal democracy more generally or about nationalism. So therefore, to somehow single out Leninism and say that this, you know, they created this God or this new Jesus, I think it's wrong. They didn't. That's and a good in point. Fact, they, very, they very radically wanted to separate what they were doing from religion. It was actually an anti-religious project. Uh, the fact that it's genealogically linked to, to Christian concepts that doesn't make it Christian. Uh, you know. And so I, I would resist that point. I think it is actually... Um, it's actually inaccurate. And um, that point that what I'm just making about this not being some kind of deification also um, links to the other point about science, right? It's opposite to the, to the idea of this some kind of mystical foundations of that figure. You actually have a very materialist and very quote-unquote rational uh, explanation of uh, Leninism as, as a rational analysis of history, which everyone has to learn, right? People are not asked in, in the Soviet, earlier Soviet Russia or later Soviet period, well, not Soviet Russia, I'm, I'm using this American language, Soviet Union. We are all guilty, you know, yeah. The idea was to learn rationally the um, Marxist-Leninist texts, you know, like, like in every college up until the very end, mm-hmm. there were these classes. Leninism and scientific communism. So the idea was actually that this is a scientific method uh, of analyzing history and uh, the communist society. And it's not without foundation, I, I must say. I mean, the socialist idea will be with us and it will, will come back. And, I mean, liberal democracy is not the end of history. And uh, the understanding of the human being as a market creature is, is definitely not the, uh, the best way to, to express uh, human nature. So, uh, you know, they were very purposefully presenting socialism as a scientific project mm-hmm. uh, and putting it against a kind of religious um, uh, thinking and religious approach to history, which existed before, which is why the Bolsheviks were so um, so militant against religion and, and against religions, religious thinking, religious symbolism, the idea of belief, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one reason why... Uh, Thinking about Leninism as a religion, uh, I think, is problematic because they themselves were quite explicitly distancing them, themselves from religion. I mean, this is not the most powerful argument against that, but this is one. Of them. Uh, when you say they, I mean, who exactly do you mean? Do you mean like the early, the, the early generation, the, the early generation of Bolsheviks, or like the, the entire, you know, through 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 Soviet history? All through Soviet history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The earlier, later, they were thinking of themselves as pursuing a scientific and rational project. Of course, yeah, no. So we turn again to the 
a question of science. Yeah, they, they were um, partly celebrating those early scientists because this was a great scientific achievement, and um, partly because it was also a part of the proof that within a few decades after the revolution, so much could be achieved in the country uh, on all sorts of different fronts, including this medical front mm-hmm. of creating the uh, body, which was the body of uh, of the founder, who also didn't, um, you know, decompose and could be celebrated. It's a kind of memorialization of the body, which was completely new, right? It wasn't about some... some mystical thinking about his immortality or resurrection. They never thought in those terms. It was a a memorial, but a memorial of a very new type, uh, which was only possible uh, because the Soviet science achieved that. So that's why it was so celebrated. Later, it became uh, secretive, partly because um, after Stalin, this destalinization campaigns, which basically argued that the whole of the last 30-year history until Stalin's death uh, were um, involved in these distortions of Lenin. And Stalin really distorted Lenin quite profoundly. He wrote all these different texts which were wrong and so forth. And as a result of that, the, the very ability to comment on Lenin publicly, to, to occupy a position that, uh, of a person who knew Lenin better than anyone else and could provide the most authoritative explanation of Lenin, that position disappeared. There was no figure who could occupy the uh, place of Lenin and write questions of Leninism, uh, the famous book by Stalin, uh, and claim that I'm the only one who can interpret Lenin. That singular authoritative position was gone. And as a result, uh, all the manipulations of Lenin texts and all the manipulations of Lenin's body became hidden. Uh, no one was supposed to be occupying the position of that author, right, which was connected to Lenin. So this is part, one reason why the lab became much more distant from the public view. Um, another reason is that it became, by that time, by the 50s and 60s, it w- was already involved in so much research, which went way beyond just the practical purpose of uh, maintaining the body, but also the general research, which is uh, necessary to uh, understand, you know, the biochemical processes in, in the human tissues after several decades after death, all these complex projects which they were running. And that general research became also uh, not necessarily something which the public was interested in. It was just like, like any research institute was doing work, which was very specialized, very professionalized, and only understood by experts. Uh, and so that was another reason why the lab became less uh, of a public institution, more of a research facility, which was kind of invisible. Hmm. And in the post-Soviet period, uh, as you mentioned, there were these journalistic accounts of the of the lab, but they were all done in this very ridiculing tone, mm-hmm. in this tone, like, oh, they are creating this god, ha-ha, like, well, not ha-ha necessarily, but how horrible. Mm-hmm. They're creating this horrible corpse. Where will our country... How will our country possibly become modern if they have a corpse in the middle of the country? That, that kind of argument. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Nonsensical, but nevertheless, you know, uh, you can make this argument in any country that that body is in, in the center of every single country. But we, nevertheless, we're sitting in San Francisco right now, and there's a there's a Orthodox church, a Russian Orthodox church, out in the Richmond district, which has an actual, uh, you know, a, um, a mummified the remains of a of a of a white emigre Russian Orthodox priest, and so. 
I don't think, um, you know... Um, but it doesn't have to be Russian Orthodox. It can be Catholic. Oh, no, yeah, exactly, there exactly. More, yeah. There, are many more, uh, there are many more bodies in Catholic churches than in Orthodox churches. Exactly. I don't know but, if there are any in, in San Francisco, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know, yeah. But, but yeah. it doesn't even have to be a body. It can, it can be just a tomb around which a national identity is organized. Like, th- think about the Arlington Memorial in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. Tomb of the unknown soldier and this incredible ritual against, around it. Which, when you look at it uh, as if through the foreign eyes, it looks almost incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you know, th- th- these kind of things are associated with the with the with the dead body, and the national sovereignty are, are very uh, central to all sorts of projects. And in that sense, Lenin's is not that original. Even though, of course, you have a, a body which is on display. That's the or, or original part. But the fact that there is a corpse in the center, that's not original. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so uh, going back to this last point, yes, the uh, this journalistic rhetoric of the 90s, or not only journalistic, but mostly journalistic, which was very negative and always very ironic, um, created this... I would kind of call it bad taste, right, among the scientists. They didn't want to be singled out as some kind of ideologues or idiots who are involved in this work. For them, it was still important because they continued doing it for decades, and it's it's actually ethically very problematic to start to stop doing it if uh, if there's no public dis- decision that you should stop doing it. Yeah. So they were doing it because they are, you know, they are scientists who take their work seriously. But at the same time, they were ridiculed. And so mm-hmm. they decided, you know what, we will not interact with anyone, or maybe in a very artificial, uh, a very uh, superficial way, but not like in depth. And that's why it was so hard to get inside. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it took, on my part, it took a lot of convincing that I'm not going to speak in that tone. Yeah. Yeah. Which eventually worked, but you know. Yeah. But it's funny, so the secretiveness actually came after the collapse of the Soviet Union and not, you know, I mean, this kind, I guess, this kind of, right. the, the, or their, 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 uh, their you know, the, 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 clo- the closed off nature uh, actually, had, it's, it's interesting, yeah. What Evgenia said, it, it intensified. It started actually in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Uh, it became already closed. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the embalmers who are well known to everyone to this day, they would be the ones who worked on the body until the 40s. Barabyov and Zbarsky, a few other names. But no one knows the names which came after. Mm-hmm. Just as like a little, I guess, side, side question, um, because, you know, I, I've heard this argument a lot from different people, from like old grandmothers and even like from young people. This mm-hmm. exact um, comment that's kind of, from my point, is well both ridiculous and just like not particularly interesting about how horrible that there is this corpse, <laughs> like literal word troop, right, the corpse in the center mm-hmm. of Moscow. What can get better no. nothing before it gets buried mm-hmm. along, along with all this horrific whatever bloodshed history of you know the usual thing of 70 years you know that the sentiment is actually weirdly shared by by many people yeah um i would say that this comment is not necessarily i guess uh, superficial or i i might have used the word superficial myself or wrong i i think for me as an anthropologist that comment in itself is an interesting uh, object mm-hmm. of analysis it's made from a particular ideological position, as all of our comments are always made. So, uh, and it's interesting that at a certain moment in uh, in the history of uh, post-Soviet Russia, that becomes a, a common uh, 
common sense phrase, right? Uh, you cannot imagine that in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lenin cannot be questioned, actually, regardless of what you think about him. You, you, you don't have to be a Leninist at all, uh, but you cannot really uh, engage publicly in this questioning of Lenin, mm-hmm. not necessarily because you're afraid, but because it's just really bad taste somehow, until the late 80s. And then in the 90s, quite quickly, everything reverses and suddenly there are all these comments about this horrible corpse and how nothing will happen in our country until we have that corpse right. in the center. So that in itself is a very interesting uh, uh, prism through which you can uh, uh, analyze what exactly is this inversion. It's not that the, these people always thought that way and now they suddenly can, can speak in those terms. They actually didn't think in those terms before. This is a new way of thinking. So that's interesting. And... Um, as I said, uh, this comment is not necessarily descriptive of the real situation because, mm-hmm. of course, you can argue that there are corpses all over the world. And that's just how uh, human society and human social world is organized. It's organized around uh, predecessors and uh, all sorts of genealogical truths which uh, come to us from the past. And many of those are associated with dead bodies. Uh, there's nothing unusual about that. But uh, the fact that Within a new political system, which now refuses, which rejects the previous one, the body which was once connected to the sacred is now reversed and can, is connected to the vile, to something very horrible. That, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anthropologists have written a lot about the concept of the sacred. It actually is always constructed out of two things, kind of this uh, dual structure. One uh, above ground is this sacred, supreme, something unquestionable. And the other one kind of below ground in the same construct is something dirty, uh, something vile, something disgusting. Uh, And um, so the sacred, when the political system inverts, as it happened in 91, 1990, 1991, that founding figure can actually invert as well. So instead of being something unquestionable, it becomes something which is disgusting on a very visceral level. That is interesting. So I'm kind of thinking about that as well. It's another proof of the particular position which Lenin as a figure occupied, the fact that that inversion could happen so quickly. Right. So these comments to me are not about some kind of rational analysis. They are about um, the – they're symptomatic of that inversion, if I – No, no, it's interesting, yeah. Well, yeah, I just kind of want to uh, uh, talk more and focus um, on the body, and so you could tell us more about the lab. But first, I just want to ask you, so it's hard to wrap around uh, my mind around the fact that uh, Lennon, um, as you referred to him, I guess the lab refers to him as a living sculpture. And uh, despite the fact that only, I don't know, what is it, like the face and the hands would be like, what, 20% less of the entire body is actually on display and seen by the public, but all the... Um, the entire, all the body parts, everything is worked on so meticulously, right? So I, my first reaction to this would be like, do anyone in the in the lab um, have any still, not esoteric beliefs, but I guess, do they deem Lenin as something sacred to some degree? Is there something beyond just being a scientist and doing what previous scientists, previous generation of scientists did? Is there some sort of belief system still in place? Or I don't know what are you... What do you call it, if you don't want to call it belief? Well, uh, originally when Lenin's body was embalmed um, uh, in 1924, of course Lenin as a figure, as we already spoke about that, 
was associated with um, this foundational truth of the whole project, which, which was very future-oriented, and we were actually, they were building this future society, and lots and lots of people were invested in it. Not only the Bolshevik leadership, but, you know, the country. Um, and uh, as the 30s and 40s went on, I would argue even more people became invested in it. So Lenin was associated with that final sort of breakthrough into the kind of liberation. It's a very liberatory right. project, the way it is experienced, right? Uh, from all sorts of uh, misery and oppression mm-hmm. which existed. And um, and so from that point of view, he did occupy this position uh, which is associated with what we may call the sacred. I should quickly add here that the sacred is not necessarily a category which should be understood religiously, as it is often done in a kind of common language. The sacred is a concept which is first and foremost political, it's not religious. Well, it, it can be religious as well, but it's not primarily. Like, for example, uh, we we're talking about the founding fathers in the Constitution, this occupies the position of the sacred, that position uh, which you cannot question, right? No American politician can say, I will run for office on the premise that our Constitution is wrong. I mean, you can say that, but you will not be involved in the political uh, process. It just completely, the system has to change for you to, to be involved in it. In the American system, you will not be able to do that. So the Constitution occupies that position of the unquestionable, and that connected to the sacred. Uh, and the so same with Lenin. So he was sacred in that sense. And of course, the scientists felt that. So they were doing not simply a scientific project of preserving a body. They were preserving the body, which was very meaningful. Uh, which was associated with the person and the words and the ideas in which so many people were invested, right? And they didn't have to be themselves very active Leninists who read Lenin every day uh, at some kind of meetings. They didn't do that. Uh, they were mostly just scientists who knew Lenin, you know, the way everyone else did, like in general, but not necessarily mm-hmm. in, in a very uh, expert way. And... Um, I think in the late Soviet period, uh, they were still honoring that figure. Uh, just like, as I said, most people were still, for most Soviet people, to question Lenin publicly would be very strange until the late 80s. When that started happening in the media in the late perestroika, it was a real revelation. Wow, they can actually ridicule Lenin, or they can critique Lenin, or they say they can say that we will build socialism which is different from Lenin's idea. That was right. just complete uh, shock. So the scientists continued honoring and thinking about that figure as very important. Uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily sacred, but still very important. Um, as for the today, I think in the when everything changed and uh, in the 90s and later, uh, that figure was no longer associated with the with any political project in which the country was involved. It was simply a historic sort of site, at least for most people. Uh, the scientists continued doing their work more as just scientists. For them, this is a, still is a place where, which is a kind of memorial to be disrespectful to an important memorial, even historic memorial, is actually very tacky and unethical. So they're thinking about it in those terms. Plus, they are scientists, and they have done so much science which enabled that body, mm-hmm. and which the body in turn enabled to make so much science, that they um, 
just continue doing it because that's what the uh, scientific project is. Uh, the main uh, scientists in this institute who ran the departments and who uh, were heads of the different groups, scientific research groups in the institute, and who were also members of the so-called mausoleum team. It's about six or seven scientists who actually worked on the body itself because the majority of the people in the institute didn't work on the body, they did general research. So these key scientists, six or seven or ten people, they were all uh, high-ranking scientists in other institutes. So for them, this work on the body and their work in, in other forms, you know, branches of medicine or biology or biochemistry, were all connected. Mm-hmm. They were just doing their job. Right. Right. And so this is why they continued. Mm-hmm. But there's no, so you don't have, or, or there shouldn't be any esoteric explanation to why the body is being preserved the way it is, meaning, as you wrote, the agility of the joints, like every little piece of the body is taken yeah. such good care of. Hmm. Well, first of all, we, we need to understand what you mean by esoteric. If you mean some kind of irrational belief that uh, the body will uh, start walking, you know, or some kind of Frankenstein that people were writing about, you know, or some kind of uh, that they might uh, one day reach a scientific uh, uh, level that the body will be reserved. Right, like Todorov, right? No. <laughs> theory, no. what of common task. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All these historical books which connected to the Fedorov project are completely overdetermined. Uh, as I'm arguing in, in this mm-hmm. work, it's completely uh, again. It's based on on very limited uh, data. The people simply saw parallels and they made these arguments. But if you start looking at the actual data, it isn't mm-hmm. like a secret Federalist clan that's you know running the inst- <laughs> running the laboratory and secretly plotting no, to in the future reanimate Lenin and have him walk the earth. There's again. not much yeah. to resurrect. I I, I, <laughs> I once actually asked Kazeltsev and uh, Lepuhin, and they were laughing so hard, and they were like. There's just not very much to, I mean, the brain is taken out, all the internal organs are taken out. Uh, you would not be able to preserve those. So this yeah. is a kind of a shell of the body. And then inside the body, so, so much of the cellular structure is you know, substituted. And so forth. I mean, mm-hmm. you can then resurrect uh, Lenin from some kind of, by cloning some cell. You don't need to have a body in the mausoleum. Yeah, right. no, right. it's about, yeah, so, yeah, it makes so sense. <laughs> th- that argument is basically based on the idea that it looks like a corpse, and therefore it looks like, oh, maybe we can resurrect it, and therefore let's make this argument. Yeah, But it, that's why I'm saying it's so important to look at the materiality of the body, to see that this argument doesn't have any foundation. And for the scientists, it, it was clear from the beginning that it doesn't have any foundation. So no, they don't have any esoteric beliefs. They, they uh, But we talked about it from mm-hmm. the beginning, right? right. They they took this body uh, as a very scientific kind of project and also a very important uh, political memorialization of, of something which is you know foundational to the whole project mm-hmm. this figure was the one who articulated the project of communism who basically made clear how the future might look and how the country is involved in this work mm-hmm. maybe uh, against communism for communists, but lots of people were invested in it. And so for the scientists, that's what it is. It's politically uh, an important symbol and scientifically a very important uh, kind of uh, research-based project. So you would argue that, you know, for the scientists involved, working in the laboratory at this point, you know, and, and probably from the very beginning then, then, you know, working on Lenin's body and preserving it is, it would be akin to preserving some, you know, architectural monument, right? Uh, made out of marble and... Um, 
you know, um, iron and things like that, that to, to, to do touch-ups and to make sure that it doesn't crumble or collapse, that there's, you know, to weatherproof it and things like that. So it's akin to... To some extent. Yeah. To some extent, but not fully, because, uh, again, uh, as I was saying earlier, they also understand that this is unique, right? What they're doing is actually unique science. Uh, if you're just involved in creating a, a sculpture, which, you know, uh, one can imagine that... Uh, if Lenin died in the summer, they were not able to preserve, to keep the body um, in a relatively good condition for the couple months which it took to take the decision to preserve it. it. It would start decomposing and they would just bury it. And then they would create a memorial with a big sculpture and it would be still good enough. There would be no mausoleum, but there would be just a memorial to Lenin on Red Square. Nothing would change in Soviet history, I think. But they did preserve the body. And now they had this idea that this is actually a scientific breakthrough. So in addition to it being similar to any memorial, it also is unique and different from any memorial. It has this uniqueness about it. And that was, you know, irreducibly part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, and they and the, the major scientists there, they were advisors in North Korea memorial. Is it that, that then they would be sort of invited places, right? To They were not even uh, advisors. They were actually the embalmers. Oh, they, they embalmed- were the embalmers. Okay. They were the imbalance. The Soviet um, and post-Soviet as well, states never completely shared uh, the know-how with the local scientists. So all the local scientists in Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Vietnam, Mongolia, North Korea, uh, Angola, and uh, Guyana, all these countries where bodies were preserved after Lenin, Mm -hmm. uh, they were were involved in the project of uh, embalming their leaders. But they didn't know uh, all the details about the original uh, two-month embalming, which happened you know, after death. Only Soviet scientists were involved in that. The reason was that the Soviets didn't want to share this information too widely. And um, to this day, the uh, lab scientists travel to the places where the bodies are still uh, displayed. And those are Pyongyang and uh, Hanoi right. in Vietnam. And they still re-embalm them every one you know, oh, wow. years, and they still uh, do some. Like all, all the daily and weekly monitoring is done by local scientists, mm-hmm. but this major procedures so they're, they're called Bashi procedure. And it's still secretive, basically, because they have to come in person and do it, right? Yeah, they don't want to share it. Now, I think mm-hmm. to some extent it's all, almost a marketing pro- uh, but- pro- uh, <laughs> reason now, because you know, they paid, paid money for this. They basically The lab is basically like a venture now. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, that's an interesting thing because I wanted to ask, since everything, you know, since so much of the Soviet state was privatized, right? Um, I mean, the lab is nominally still a government institution? Yeah. It's part of a research institute called Vilar, which took it under its uh, wing in the mid-90s. Because when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the party, as you remember, lost its leading uh, position. It was actually outlawed in November Mm -hmm. 1991, even, you know, almost two months before the Soviet Union collapsed. So there was no one really supervising the lab anymore. And uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, all these institutions of state funding and supervision also collapsed. So the lab was completely cut off any financial support. And at the same time, it was not closed down because there was no agency to close it down. It was just you know, left like any research institute in the Soviet Union continued by inertia. 
if you, I don't know if you remember, in the early 90s, lots of research institutes, like, I don't know, radio physics or mathematics, they basically didn't have money to pay salaries to their employees. Right, yeah. Yes. So they had to rent out their premises to private businesses to make, to make money. And the same was with the lab. It was completely cut off any resources. So it existed because these key scientists also were employed in other places, as I said. And so they sometimes were paid some salaries elsewhere. And the lab continued more or less because people just didn't want it to stop because they thought it would be a problem. And then there was a, a private fund established uh, in the early 90s called Mavzalei, to which uh, regular citizens or you know, uh, entrepreneurs and even some early millionaires were giving some uh, contributions in order to maintain the lab just because they thought it would be uh, a disgrace if Lenin's body you know, had to be closed down because there was no scientists left to, to support it. Wow. Just extremely disrespectful to our history and so forth. And I think they, they it make, made sense. Right. And then later, uh, in the mid-90s, the lab was taken uh, under the wing of this institute, uh, part of the Ministry of Agriculture, which it never was part of. It was part of the... Agriculture. Uh, Strange. Yeah, and it's purely because this biochemical research it does is connected to some biochemical research which mm -hmm. is done in that institute. It's not because what they're doing is connected to agriculture directly. But they, uh, they've done a lot of work which is very relevant right. to the institute. So it... It's now officially part of that institute, even though it has its own premises in Moscow, different buildings. Mm -hmm. so, so now the uh, salaries are paid through that institute. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're not? Are you not surprised that in the '90s, during all this, like basically complete collapse um, uh, of the state and this? by inertia the lab survived but you're not surprised that it wasn't closed down because of how strong the anti-bolshevik anti basically sentiment was well, there were uh, different positions at that mm -hmm. time there were people who were saying that you have to close the mausoleum you have to actually bury the body uh, right the ground and there were all sorts of arguments and there were those who were saying uh, there were like at least three positions. The second one was we shouldn't do it yet because there are so many people who live their lives invested in the Soviet project. Yes. And so it would be like a slap, even if they were not necessarily Leninists, but it's a slap. It's like a statement to them, you lived uh, in vain. Everything we, we now decide from our position today. Exactly. Than you and, we, and we happen to think that our position is correct that you are wrong. And then maybe our grandchildren will tell, say the same thing about us. You are wrong. And we will change it. So, you know, this kind of uh, mm -hmm. very, uh, very uh, fast decision that we will erase something into which you were invested seemed like very unethical and problematic to a lot of people. And I should say this is in general how history is being treated everywhere in the world. There's always this arguments. Should we... Uh, take down all the monuments to Louis the Fourteenth in Paris, or should we not? I mean, yes, mm -hmm. he was a monarch against which we had a revolution, but this is part of our history, and there were some good and bad things about it. Paris was built up, you know, blah blah, became a modern city under him. Or let's have Napoleon in the, in the Pantheon in, in Paris. Well, he was actually a totalitarian leader who killed millions, but he also made France great. So, what should we do? Should we celebrate him or not? And I think. In general, the arguments which are part of the, especially kind of right liberal media, 
in Russia and in the West, which say that, you know, until Lenin's body is taken out, um, Russia hasn't quite grappled with its past, right? Or until uh, this Soviet national anthem is changed. Putin brought it back, how horrible. He's just, you know, a Stalinist. And one can turn it around and ask, well, let's look at the at England, at Britain. It's, you know, British Empire was a very violent state for many centuries, right? It had this big colonial project around the world. It initiated the triangle slave trade in, in the Atlantic. It was Britain. Uh, and uh, under that, all of that was done with the national anthem, God Save the Queen. And they still sing it in their World Cup football. The English team comes out and sings it with their hands on their hearts. One can ask, wait a minute, why do you still sing it if, if it's connected to that history? And I think the answer is we grappled with that history. We don't want it uh, to be a colonial state. But this is also our history. So we can recognize that there are good and bad things about it. And we cannot invest symbols with simply one or the other side. We need to be more um, more dialectical in our relationship to history. And mm. I think the same argument can be made here. Lots of people thought, why should we suddenly, after the collapse of socialism, decide that everything associated with it is bad and therefore we should take it out? Mm-hmm. You know, this is a very particular point of view which tends to be very rash and mm-hmm. maybe... No, I agree with you. It just seemed like they wanted to cancel everything else. <laughs> Not the body, you but just... You can say Nazi yeah. Germany went through this. There was a denazification. You cannot have any monuments to the Nazi leaders. But the argument that connects communism with Nazism, I think, is also problematic. Nazism I, was I a agree. Very ideology based on, on, on hatred. It wasn't yeah. a project of emancipation. It was a project of uh, eradication, right? And also, uh, Nazi Germany went through denazification because it lost the war, and there were these four nations, Britain, France, the United States, and uh, Soviet Union, which... Uh, you know, organized the Nuremberg process, uh, trials, and which basically named the crimes, crimes. Um, you know, the United States never had to go through the same kind of decolonial uh, projects related to its own uh, slaves, slavery in the past. It deals with it in a much more um, matter-of-fact way by, by teaching about that period, by talking. And we still live a, a lot of the legacy of that period, as we know, in the United States. Um, so yeah. there are many different ways of dealing with the past. And uh, the argument that this somehow Russia is supposed to take out Lenin or the mausoleum because this is the right thing to do, which is what right liberal media likes to say, I think it's a, it's a problematic argument if you look at the uh, way history should, is dealt with and should be dealt with. No, uh, I completely agree. But when you especially say all right, uh, liberal right media, it seems like in Russia, actually, most media doesn't matter, like oppositional or pro-government. It's it's all right wing. So it seems to be like a, a fairly well, common sentiment. Yes, but these days, most of the until recently, at least, most of the government-run media kind of avoided this question. Right. There's very little discussion about the mm-hmm. fate of Mazadeam in the last 20 years. And I think part of the reason is precisely that, that they did You know, Putin is, is in no way a Leninist. He's an anti-communist. <laughs> an anti- yeah. yeah. And yet, I think what he, as you know, 
watching him for all these years and his government, what he doesn't want to do is somehow present the Soviet and Russian historical project as unique and as uniquely uh, as uniquely evil. Mm-hmm. The, and, and a statement like that, like, for example, closing the mausoleum and taking Lenin's body out uh, would be a world-recognized ritual, which would say to the world and to the Russians, we recognize that our history was wrong. Mm. And yeah. I think that kind of statement he doesn't want to make. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I, I, I yeah. mean, I, I never spoke to, to Putin. <laughs> I don't know anyone who spoke to Putin. I, I'm just guessing. Yeah. No, but it makes sense. It makes sense because it's it's, it's weak. It's weak. Yeah, right? exactly. Because it's about it's about especially especially now where you know everything is framed as sort of this existential battle against the West. You know, Russia's existential battle against the West. To do something like that would be would be seen as weakness and would be seen as sort of capitulating almost to a kind of a Western yeah. Um, demonization yeah. of Russia and and its and its history. Or, you know, as he likes to call it, historic Russia. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. but but so Alexei, do, do I understand you correctly? Then what you wrote about, and it's been a while back in the, in the paper, um, quoting Putin, who basically by not wanting openly, not wanting to close down mausoleum or change anything, he basically nor- was normalizing more or less Soviet history. And do you feel that now, despite the recent month or what has it been, six weeks, uh, nothing? really would change about that about the normalization of soviet history because it felt like there's like a i don't know it felt like a more openly anti-bolshevik turn anti-leninist anti-leninist openly when when you listen to his like long speech from february like such a distinct i don't know it seems to be like a more definitive turn now or do you think it will persevere well uh, i should say that putin was always anti-soviet yeah Uh, mm -hmm. There was often a misunderstanding that the, the reason he celebrates certain achievements which were, um, you know, connected to the Stalinist period or the victory in the Second World War clearly is celebrated as a key event, mm-hmm. that therefore he was kind of trying to resurrect the Soviet Union. He never tried to resurrect the Soviet Union. He, if anything, he's trying to resurrect the empire, right? Yeah, no, of course. He, his project is very imperialist. And he understands it in terms of, in this really problematic terms of uh, civilization. There are these civilizations in the world, kind of like Huntington argument. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there is this North Atlantic civilization yeah. and there is a Russian civilization, which is a different planet. <laughs> Not, I mean, all that stuff, which is actually, you know, it, it's shared by the neocons in, in, in the West yes. uh, really powerfully. But um, so he was never a, so, a pro-Soviet. <clears throat> I don't know what will happen now. Of course, I, I have no idea what he's thinking. No one expected that he will start the war. At least, I mean, I mean most people didn't. No. I didn't. And um, therefore, I don't know. But I don't see a radical transformation. I don't think that there is... If, if I analyze <clears throat> things in the way I have been uh, speaking about them just now, I don't see any particular major transformation which that would make him wants to take Lenin out. Mm-hmm. Because he just said that this project of decommunization which Ukraine was pursuing mm-hmm. was a problem. And mm-hmm. let us uh, decommunize you uh, and denazify you for real. Yeah, it's like, and yeah. the in, in, in Ukraine was connected to this Lenin apart, you know, the Lenin fall, when they take out uh, yeah. all the Lenin monuments from the pedestals. It was by law in Ukraine. Yes. They were not supposed to be any Lenin monuments left. So I think if he took Lenin out of the mausoleum now, it seems to me that he would have been doing similar things to what Ukraine was doing. And would he want that? I don't think so. Right. But then again, I cannot really vouch for that. 
Well, no one can, of course. So I, I don't really think that in his mind something has changed so radically that uh, now the mausoleum has to be. I, I, if anything, I think it's even less in the focus now than before. That it's not really about that. I mean, if you ask me what should happen to the mausoleum, um, I think it should remain where it is and uh, it one should make a memorial out of it, a memorial to Soviet history with all the horrible crimes we should commit and all the great mm -hmm. achievements we should make. And, uh, and the body would be part of that memorial. Why not? It, it would be like a unique, interesting, not memorial, a museum, a museum site. Uh, I, I don't see any problem with that. Uh, but taking everything out, uh, you know, I, I kind of agree with the scientists. It would be a shame because they done so much interesting work around it. Uh, and um, nothing would really change politically in the country if you take that body out. I mean, this symbolic gesture would simply be uh, a symbolic gesture, nothing else. Mm -hmm. So uh, ask, answering your question again, I don't really see uh, that it doesn't seem to me that for Putin, somehow Lenin and the mausoleum are, are in any way important. Mm -hmm. That he, uh, with this aggression in Ukraine, he would somehow start thinking about that body more and think that we should get rid of it. I think uh, it, that body is not really his concern, except in the negative sense that he doesn't want to admit by a, a public ritual of taking it out. He doesn't want to admit that somehow the our history was wrong. Right. No, it's it's actually it's, it's a really, really good, good point. point in yeah. fact, it's, it's more like Lenin's body by existing in its current state now and you know in the mausoleum is not a threat to his power in any way or a threat no. to his, but but removing it actually would would create a spectacle and create a whole uh, would that actually would be a kind of threat, you know, to 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 the, exactly. the ideology. If you keep the trying. body in, if you could keep the body in and nothing changes, it's kind of a neutral decision. If you take the body out, it's a very active yes. criticism of your own past. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. Interesting, yeah. But, but you know, I actually wanted to say, circle back, you know, because when you're saying that, you know, for instance, you know, like the British, uh, Britain and, you know, hasn't sort of renounced the symbols around the British Empire and all, you know, and, and under which, you know, a lot of this, a lot of these horrible, horrific crimes were committed in, um, you know, uh, around the world and also America isn't like renouncing the, you know, its founding fathers for, for some of the, for some of the things that they did, like owning slaves and all this, right? So, but, but, you know, the difference between, you know, America and Britain and and the Soviet Union and Russia is that you know Russia did go through essentially a, a kind of a counter revolution right and where and a lot of the symbols I mean were were, were you know streets were renamed you know entire entire structures there was not a, like a total decommunization I guess that, that happened but there was a partial decommunization of of at least part of it so I don't know if it's like I, don't, I just wanted to comment on the previous thing I'm not sure if it's such a great analogy because the British Empire you know it exists in a smaller form right it, well there wasn't a revolution that completely toppled the, the government and structure of power and same thing for America well it, this is not exactly true if you think about the last several years with all the confederate monuments in America being uh, discussed yes. many of them been taken down names, names have been taken off the uh, university campuses, yeah. the building in which my department is located, Anthropology at Berkeley, yes. which was called Kroeber Hall after the great anthropologist Alfred Kroeber. It's been renamed. It's now called Anthropology Building. Oh, really? Because oh, Kroeber I didn't know that. is, yeah. 
he wasn't actually at all a racist. He was an anti-racist. But he was involved in some research which is now considered problematic on, on Native Americans. So that's Got it. Yeah. So you you actually have this process going on. And in Britain as well, uh, a lot of the, in the last five years, a lot of the monuments, like for example in Bath and in Brighton, two monuments of the former colonialists who were involved in the triangle slave trade mm-hmm. were taken down. At first by crowds, and then it was instituted by the state. So some of that analogy still stands. And I think... Um, the reason it is less uh, less powerful of a process in the U.S. and in Britain, you're absolutely right, Yasha, is because the Soviet Union collapsed and there was a big rupture from the past. Yeah. Whereas in American Britain, the rupture, rupture happened elsewhere. The colonial pro- process was happening in India and Pakistan and uh, Africa, not on British Isles as obviously to the, to, to the British population, which is why it's just catching up with them now. Yeah, and it's and it's happening internally, and in, I guess you could say in a kind of a more you know gradual, democratic you know process, a messy kind of conversation that's happening within slowly, rather than a, a clear kind of you know falling of the axe and, and and things changing almost you know not overnight, but in a very in a very fast way, and then and whole entire structures of power sort of disappearing and changing and, and uh, yeah, I I would I would be I would be careful to call it simply democratic because uh, a lot of the media coverage, uh, you know, by corporate media, especially in the U.S. I mean, most media which can reach millions of people in the U.S. is corporate media. Of course. And the kind of decisions, how they cover things, are made uh, by considering all sorts of market principles and ratings. (laughs) That's not a democratic kind of uh, organization of uh, information, right? Some of it is democratic and some of it is very market-oriented. So the fact that there is no public discussion of these things in America until recently, and even now not very popular, is partially shaped by the corporate media. Mm-hmm. And that is not necessarily a very democratic uh, context. Right. I mean, some of it is, some of it isn't. I mean, yeah, I mean, democratic um, within, 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 you know, the definition of democratic in America, I mean, just even locally here in San Francisco, you know, I mean, there is a kind of a... You know, you have initiatives to rename schools. You know, kind of taken by the you know the school board, and then there's sort of a pushback against it. You know, obviously it's it's all covered in the media, and and how people respond to it is 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 seen through the lens of of a corporate corporate owned you know monopolistic media essentially. But still, there's a kind of a you know a take a, a, a kind of a process that's happening. You know, as close to as democracy as you can possibly get in in, in America's current climate. You know, yeah. and, and certain questions which are connected to American history and which we live today uh, are kind of off limits almost of public discussion, and they're not really covered in the uh, corporate media too much. I mean, you live in San Francisco, right? Well, currently, yeah, we're right now yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I live in Berkeley. My kids go to school in San Francisco, so I daily encounter this human misery uh, on a huge scale yeah. on, the, on the streets of Berkeley and San Francisco. It's like homeless people everywhere. Oh, yeah. uh, some of them live in tents and some live in shanty towns like build out of the scrap under the bridges. Oh, yeah. Hundreds. Oh, yeah. Literally hundreds. Berkeley is just completely overrun by that. And, you know, the kind of media coverage I've seen mostly focuses on how that creates crime and how people who live in those neighborhoods have to suffer and so forth. Exactly. There's very little analysis of how we should actually change the system profoundly to, to get rid of this. No, they just want this to ship them far away. That, yeah. This liberal ideology which talks about merit and personal responsibility clearly creates this problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, I mean, the, yeah, so yeah, yeah. 
So that's that's you know that's the limits of democracy. It's, it's it's presented as democracy, but it's actually very much based on corporate interests, which don't allow for certain kind of discussions, and don't allow for certain kind of education of the, about those problems uh, for the public discussions to happen. I mean, they do happen in America, but mostly on the margins, and uh, that will not solve the problem. Right. So you know, yeah. Well, we are um, not margins. We are getting far away from the mausoleum, but I think it's all connected. No, it is connected. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah. want to ask, since you briefly mentioned, you know, American basically empire, British empire, and then Soviet Union ha- actually having going through the real rupture inside the Soviet Union. And do you think like there's con- constantly again, maybe because it's a corporate media in, in America, there's constantly this talk, and I think it's very confusing, and um, that refers to Soviet Union as just empire, and uh, then it, and a colonial empire. Too. I don't know. How do you interpret that? Yeah, I think the the discussion about evil empire or the Soviet Union was an empire, and that, and that uh, Putin tries to reconstruct the Soviet right. empire and all those discussions. Uh, I mean, the, the, they are both right and wrong. Uh, they're wrong in the sense that, uh, of course, uh, the Soviet Union was a communist project first and foremost, mm-hmm. and so it was a liberatory project. It, it had a lot of the. Um, bad things which happened uh, along the way and along of the along a lot of those were very imperial bad things like uh, uh, central asia was both liberated and uh, in, enslaved uh, so, so to, to talk about the relationship between the soviet center and tajikistan mm-hmm. uh, in purely colonial terms is problematic but to say that it, they were not colonial at all is also problematic there was an element of colonialism. Uh, but of course, it wasn't just that. It was not just an empire. And the, it was not just an imperial project of expanding into new territory uh, and uh, impose your rule. It was also a project of uh, producing this uh, new socialist equality and creating, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of local elites. There were a lot of the uh, projects of trying to educate uh, in the local languages and create local media, which were, you know, some of them were similar to what the colonialists were doing uh, in India, and some of them were very different. Um, so th- that's why I would say that to call the Soviet Union an empire by basically drawing this analogy with uh, Western colonialism is problematic. Yeah. Uh, some people have been doing this. You know, there's all sorts of work about this, but I think it's a problematic argument. But to also argue that it was not at all colonial, that it was all about liberation, is also problematic because clearly, uh, especially with Stalin, but even starting with Lenin's definition of nationalities. But then with Stalin, it, it, it started acquiring a lot of colonial uh, features. So it, it's an interesting hybrid, which we haven't still analyzed enough. And I think it, it requires a language which goes beyond mm-hmm. just colonialism, but which still uh, is uh, honest enough to recognize that the colonial element was definitely there. I mean, and you mean by that, you know, the, the lack of sort of the, because it wasn't just the the expansion wasn't just about you know essentially resource extraction as you know as what kind of the classical idea of what an empire does, right? Like the British Empire is expands in order to you know extract resources from a territory, and uh, mm-hmm. and, and and so the Soviet Union wasn't doing that, you know, in the Central Asia for in Central Asia, for instance, wasn't just expanding for the purposes of resource extraction for uh, metropolia but, yeah but, but at the same time it was also engaging in the kind of civilizing it had an aspect of a civilizing kind of ideology right where it was sort of civilizing the the kind of backwards natives and all that's you know yeah first and foremost it was imposing imposing socialism uh, uh, without giving any option right yeah. it was basically was basically liberating by force in a way right yes mm-hmm. and, uh, 
uh, if you were against it and you were a counter-revolutionary. So that aspect, uh, you can say that this is a revolutionary liberatory project, but of course it has a colonial underpinning, right? You basically come and impose a system, which is, uh, and you come from elsewhere and impose a system on the local population. Right. So that aspect of, of it was very colonial. Uh, even though the premise behind that colonialism was different. Yeah. It was not about uh, this uh, expansion of the capitalist uh, extraction uh, market system. It was you know, the idea of the socialist liberation, but it was still colonial. Yeah. So it's, it's a different kind of colonial project. And as I said, it cannot be um, grasped by the term colonialism. It, it actually went far beyond it. And mm-hmm. some, of, and a lot of it was explicitly anti-colonial as well. Right. Uh, the creating the uh, which is why the Soviet project was so popular and so influential all over the world with the decolonizing nations. Yeah, but I, I just want to go back first for a second to the Lenin's body. Uh, you immediately said that um, you find it very wrong um, and you, uh, to interpret Lenin as some sort of like communist Jesus and communism as like some version of another religion because it was, you say, it was scientific and uh, facts were presented to you and it wasn't just uh, a book of revelation that you're supposed to just learn by heart. But at the same time, from what I know, and you you actually lived in Soviet Union, for right? You grew up there. Like, wasn't it a very still you know like a top down even if it's not a book of relations not a bible it was a very top down kind of set of facts and set of quotes and set of ideas that you were supposed to learn by heart and it wasn't open up for debate uh in any way even if it was like marxism leninism and sort of like yeah uh, i agree there, there was a lot of the expectation that you would uh, uh you would have to become a good soviet right so you would have even through this so-called, quote-unquote, deliberatory process, when you argue at the seminars on Marxist-Leninism, mm-hmm. why Marxist-Leninism is correct, you are, you are supposed to arrive at the idea that it's correct. <laughs> You're not supposed to arrive at the idea that it's wrong, right? So yeah. from, but, but that doesn't make it religious. It, uh, you can say that, as, as I said in the beginning, that's what many political systems actually are based upon. This idea that liberal democracy is the mm-hmm. free world is actually the idea which... Uh, I mean, it, you, you are not going to be put in prison if you don't believe it in the United States. But it's take it's common sense. It's created as common sense, and it's presented through schooling, through media. I mean, I'd say it has a religious. I would call it, it religious too. It has <laughs> a religious overtones. I'd say you know, in terms of it's a truth that you can't really question, and if you question it, you a lot of things are close to you. But you remember know? what yeah. I said in the beginning, yeah. what I said in the very beginning of our conversation, and I will repeat it again, a lot of our modern political concepts are based on religion. They are genealogically linked to, uh, to especially to Christianity mm-hmm. uh, yes. in the European and, uh, modernity. It, it doesn't make them religious. They are the idea of uh, taking something for granted and believing in it without necessarily being able to question it, right? Uh, the idea of the constitution, the idea of law, rule of law, and so forth. Uh, all of those ideas, are, like modern law and modern sovereignty, are based on some uh, religious concepts. Uh, you have to take something for granted first in order then uh, for the next thing to follow. Like you have to take for granted that the founding fathers are right. And it's not like everyone in school knows every single text by the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. They had this extremely elaborate classes where they debated every single point and then they arrived all together at the idea. Of course, they were right. Well, you first learned that they're right. And then you learn more and more about them. And, and most people probably don't really learn very much about them. They just know that they're right. So those ideas in modern uh, political uh, 
liberal democratic system are connected to some religious foundations of our, of our political systems. But it doesn't mean that they're religious. They are based uh, on uh, the concepts of belief, the concepts of uh, the unquestionable truth, mm-hmm. all those concepts uh, of sovereignty, which we spoke about before. And sovereignty is something which predates uh, law and political uh, utterance in any system. Right? And all of them have religious foundations. But it doesn't mean that uh, we sh- should argue that therefore American liberal democracy is, is just religion or Soviet socialism was just religion. Mm-hmm. Okay, So one doesn't follow from the other. And then even the fact that um, after a Soviet Union collapsed and then quickly there was such a disarray and it seems like a lot of people, even if it's performatory or whatever, turned to back to Russian orthodoxy, it doesn't necessarily prove anything? Because I, I thought like, oh, if that if all of a sudden a lot of people were ready to completely switch back in a way. So I, I just thought that that's kind of, you know, if you could can like flip it like this, <laughs> uh, it seems to be then. Well, then that's a very interesting yeah, you know? uh, phenomenon, actually. Uh, one argument which is, I think, uh, wrong is that, uh, uh, and that's an argument which one reads about quite, quite frequently, especially in the media, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the uh, Christian orthodoxy was forbidden more or less right in the soviet union participating in uh religion openly was frowned upon if not completely forbidden but was really frowned upon and uh, problematic uh and so when the soviet union the lid of oppression was gone suddenly everyone went back because they were secretly <laughs> believers that's a completely wrong argument. Yeah, right <laughs> most people who went went to the orthodoxy where they couldn't care less about yes no i agree with you times. of course mm-hmm. and that's one point another point is it's completely overdetermined this argument that uh, Russia is now really turning to Orthodox. Actually, most Russians couldn't care less again. Uh, even if they go to churches, they actually don't really know very much about no, it. No, I mean, of course, there are people who do, but the overwhelming majority doesn't. Even if they go to churches, if they they come sometimes when the, some uh, mis, uh, uh, some miraculous icon is brought to a city, there's a big line of people, right. and then it all ends there. You know, they don't necessarily practice much else. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what kind of religious? quote-unquote revival we have in Russia. It's not really a revival. It's a construction of something completely new, a relationship to religious symbols which came in place of a big void, of uh, kind of symbolic void which happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union when there was no project, there was no ideology. I mean, for generations, people were living in a country which was really invested with its meaning, future-oriented meaning. You could be... Uh, openly in support of it, you could be indifferent to it, you could be opposed to it, but you lived within it. And suddenly that future-oriented, meaningful project was completely gone, right? And so yeah. the 90s were the, the, the time of no project, uh, you basically just market, everyone is against everyone, uh, make a buck or, or survive. Right. And that was a time when pe- people were searching for a lot of meaning. And I think uh, r- religious, quote-unquote, revival, or rather new construction, was part of that process. Mm-hmm. It was just one of them. There were many processes of this type. Um, but it doesn't mean that Russia became, as a result, again, a Christian nation. It's actually extremely secular. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most secular nations in the world. No, I agree. It always seemed to me very performatory whenever I encountered it and I grew up in Moscow. It just didn't <laughs> didn't right. necessarily strike me as very religious, unlike American society, which is, at least in parts where I lived here, it strikes me as pretty mm-hmm. religious, much more so than yeah, Russia. That's another big question about America, actually, but yeah. 
I don't want to keep going. Maybe we, we can do another. Yeah, it's, it's a different it, subject. It, it's, yeah, yeah. it's funny okay. how it's funny how the 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 you know it's the you always you always want to do comparative stuff. I mean, just it's always one bleeds into the other always. Um, whenever we talk about Russia, well, this it's is always, also yeah. an anthropological method. You know, you yeah. need to be able to. I mean, I'm an anthropologist, right? The, the central method of anthropology, or not even a method, the s- central posture for an anthropologist is to, once you see something is strange, to to recognize that it's not strange and uh, that simply you are looking from a position uh, of something, of, of the norm in your mind, and therefore you look at something as weird. Why do they do these weird things? Yes. Maybe you should look back at the position from <laughs> which you look as also weird. So defamiliarize your own position yeah. and familiarize the position of the other. So, you know, turn the tables. And this is why comparative is so important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, I have one last question, I swear. And uh, it just um, seems to be, again, uh, I was thinking about it just in the last month. Uh, because you, you were, So you were writing um, in your book, and I think there were also a few papers like on Stop, that um, basically also, I think, late capitalism then, which is what a decade ago, already uh, seemed in some ways similar to uh, certain um, developments in late socialism in Soviet Union. And um, do you think that now, with this like slightly, I don't know, can you say like table turned, it turns because of Putin and the invasion, and do you think this actually here, where, where I guess we still live in late capitalism, or however you call it, uh, it's it, it's going to be revived and it's actually will survive for much longer and it's not going to basically go down <laughs> as soon as, I don't know, some of us thought. Um, be- yeah, because of Putin, basically. Right. I was actually never arguing that late capitalism is going down. No, I was not saying down, that yeah. we can see, yeah, yeah, this uh, certain symptoms uh, in the political and media discourse in the West, and especially in the US, were reminiscent of what was happening in late Soviet mm-hmm. for different reasons, not for the reasons of the party control over those but of the, for the reasons of this certain uh, late liberal market-oriented logic and uh, some other things, right? This uh, soundbite culture. Yeah. Conditions say things which most people see as false, but nevertheless they keep saying them, yeah? Mm-hmm. Because that's what they're supposed to say. And, and the corporate media, which cannot cover certain things, or, you know, it, like can you imagine CNN having a, a discussion about this war in Ukraine by inviting... Uh, you know, the Russian left to the table no. to talk about American imperialism. I mean, they will just not do that. No. Right? Uh, and that's partly not because they're evil people necessarily, but because, you know, they have to look at these ratings. They have to look at the audience and the audience will totally turn against them if they did that. So when mass media is organized around the principle, which is not about information and democratic deliberation, but about ratings and selling a product to the audience, and those two principles are in conflict, then what you get is not a very democratic discussion, but a very, you know, uh, hyper-normalized one, which is similar to what was happening in Soviet Union. But I actually, I just kind of partially answered your question. I don't think uh, American media is becoming, corporate media is becoming any more open and democratic discussing what's happening now. It's basically very happily portrays Russia is just bad, everything else is just good, and that's basically the limit of the analysis. Uh, I mean, to some extent, I agree with that analysis, but it's only to some extent. It, it's it's a very binary picture, right? We yeah. all understand that it, it's a war against demo- between democracy and uh, totalitarianism, war yeah. against 
good and evil and that's the level of analysis yeah no i guess i i didn't articulate it well uh i i didn't i didn't mean that uh it's going to be some de democracy in the media <laughs> here i meant that just the system here is actually going to seem uh more normal in comparison to evil you know uh russian Soviets. that's what i'm trying to answer i'm just saying that this level of rhetoric I think will still be seen by a lot of Americans and a lot of uh, Western audiences as continuing in the same kind of trivialization, which is based upon these binaries, right? Uh, we are the free world and everyone else is not. Uh, and not uh, analyzing the, you know, the global imperialism, for example, right. which created such dictators as Putin. Because America was very much complicit. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it backed it backed the dictatorial kind of the presidential powers that you know gave conferred on the president dictatorial powers that Putin enjoys. You know, it backed, it backed those reforms, those constitutional reforms in Russia and you know, under Yeltsin and all that. So even if yeah. there's like a short-lived uh, support for the corporate media now, because the CNN ratings are much higher now than they were a month ago. Yeah. They were really not so doing not so well, and now because of this war, they're very high those ratings. I still think it will go down again mm -hmm. once the situation changes because it's not seen as as a democratic media. I yeah. mean, I can already see it, you know, just by monitoring kind of people's what people are interested in and by seeing it's just already <laughs> already people's interest in the war in America is flagging. I mean, I know that it's this war is, you know, for especially for the liberal, you know, corporate media in America, it's like it is like number one, you know, it's the it's the front page story and the second page story and the third page story of the New York Times every day. But like, but just the general interest of people, I, I think it's already because I mean, look, the the, the problems plaguing their the, the problems of their lives, you know, that as you mentioned, you know, the homelessness, the poverty, the inequality, the kind of the the complete lack of, you know, the 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 grinding to a halt of of like of America's you know state institutions <laughs> and you know like I mean just as shown by the COVID response and all this stuff like I mean it's it's just it's much more relevant so again it might have been a boost I'm uh, given a boost to this idea of American exceptionalism and sort of liberal you know democracy or whatever but I, I don't think it's going to hold either yeah it's 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 all very temporary temporary but you know um, one uh, I just before we let you go I I wanted to ask you know what your um, because you know Adam Curtis, you know, uh, used the term that you coined, hypernormalization, for the title of his documentary. Um, I wondered, you know, what did you think? Of, what did you think of the way he handled um, kind of the the, the concept? Um, Mm -hmm. What did you think of the, What did you think of the film? Uh, yeah, I spoke with him about it because first of all, he never mentioned me in the film. He just said one Russian use this term, <laughs> and then I wrote to him that my student, the greatest student, asked me whether I took the term from the film. And yeah. I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> I better contact him because this is unfair. No, it's, yeah. And so he's like, oh, you're absolutely right, I'm so sorry, and then he started wow. mentioning me in, in all sorts of interviews. Right, that's what I noticed. Yeah, I that's like, the... What? Because I read your book way before the, <laughs> the film came out, and then... Yeah, the parameters, the ethical parameters in uh, academia and outside, I, I guess, are slightly different. Uh, well, no, I, that's, I disagree. I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a real easily thing to do. I mean, Evgeny and I talked about this actually. Well, we like, well, how can you? We noticed, we noticed when we were watching the film. That, that same thing. He yeah. said, yeah, like one Russian. It's like, no, it's not the one Russian. It's the, this is the guy that coined the term and that you're using, and, 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 this the whole, is the and the whole conceptual framework that you're yeah. using for your film. You know, it's 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 a. It, I mean, as, as I don't know. But going yeah. beyond that, right. just about his interpretation, I think one thing which he said, probably well, in the film it's kind of implicit, 
But then uh, in the interviews which followed, he says it, and somehow that phrase is constantly quoted in many texts and attributed to me, which is uh, also very unfortunate. And the phrase, I, I don't remember mm -hmm. it verbatim, but I will reproduce, that everyone in the Soviet Union knew that the system is not working, but they couldn't imagine an alternative. That's what happened in musicians. And that's not what that's happened not. in And people were not... I mean, it's wrong to say that everyone in the Soviet Union knew the system is not working, because that kind of knowledge requires stepping out of the system and looking at it from the outside yeah. mm -hmm. and saying, you know, that system doesn't work. Uh, it wasn't imagined in those terms. It was just not imaginable that it will collapse. But it's not, it wasn't an active uh, you know, process of uh, asking each other, do we have another system in, uh, uh, in our education? People didn't think in those terms. So he kind of trivialized a little bit the concept. And hybridization had to do with language first and foremost. I, I talked, uh, at least in my book, it, it, it was about this political rhetoric, about this ideological discourse, which became so predictable and so citational, mm -hmm. you quote, same text over and over and over, that eventually it was almost impossible to understand what it said. The form was so important, but the actual substance of those texts really evaded you right? mm -hmm. and and that to me was uh, symptomatic of a certain shift in late socialism that um, the project became not so important for the people as a this future-oriented construction of communism it was more uh, important to reproduce the present because it allowed you to live your own life in a very complex way to the effect even of continuing to be invested in a lot of socialist values uh, but to think about them, not necessarily in the terms of the party apparatchiks, but in the terms of the sociality in which you lived, right? People didn't care too much about money. They cared about the common good. They cared about uh, the uh, socialist uh, welfare state and so forth. But they didn't necessarily consider the party to, to be a re representative entity which stood for those values anymore. So that's what hyperdomization was in my text. I think he he took some of it and twisted some of it as well. So, but ultimately, I'm also thankful to him that he made my book much more visible as a result. You know, even if he misquoted me and somewhat misinterpreted me, eventually when he started giving interviews, uh, lots of people turned to my book as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's also, you know, because media has it's, it's a dialectical power. kind of situation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't know he was making the film. Is that what you're saying? No. Oh, wow. I actually, it was a very funny story. I, uh, you know, the, uh, there was this uh, band in the 80s, or early 90s, I guess, in Britain, Blur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, there was a, I love that band. And there was this guy, uh, Joe Cocker, uh, Joe, uh, Jarvis Cocker, mm -hmm. who was the uh, leader of Blur and who was actually Pop. very. Um, you know, a very intellectual, uh, uh, outspoken guy. And he has this program on BBC mm. Radio 4 called Jarvis Cocker Sunday Service. Yeah, I listen uh, to it sometimes. And, words mm. and so I listen to it as well sometimes. And I was uh, biking in Berkeley one day listening to it. I sometimes do what is not supposed to be done. I listen to the radio on my bike. And... I was listening live, and uh, he had uh, Adam Curtis as a guest. And at some point, they started talking about hybridization. And I'm like, oh my God. So that's what I learned. I was biking when I learned about <laughs> it from Jar Jarvis Cocker. And I wrote, wrote to Jarvis, and he responded. And uh, 
he connected me with Adam Curtis. So that, that's how I found out. Wow. Wow. So he, so Adam Curtis didn't actually get in touch with you. Yeah. Guys, I, I should correct myself. Mm-hmm. I, I think I said blur. I, I meant pulp. pulp. pulp I, yeah. I like both of those bands. Pulp. Pulp. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know why I said that. Jarvis was in pulp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there was a whole bunch of these British bands which I listened to in grad school. So that was one of them. But anyway, but yeah, Adam Curtis, I mean, we, we're not scared to say it. He was a thief before. It's not the first time, I would <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah. Which is, I don't know why well, he does that. Yeah, I, I don't want to accuse him, you know? It's like... Uh, Wait, that's, it it's us, that's what we're but... saying, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're not not attributing okay. it to you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I must also say that when I wrote to him, I, it took me months to mm-hmm. to get my act together because I felt kind of embarrassed. And then I wrote to him kind of a nice letter, but said, you know, uh, it's unfortunate that you didn't mention because now my students think. And he instantly, within like two minutes, responded. So I think he was ready for this kind of acknowledgement. I'm wrong, he said. You are right. And then I, I will now start talking about you everywhere, blah, blah. Oh, wow. So okay. in a way, I think he yeah. felt, yeah. Mm-hmm. He knew that he did, he knew that he did something wrong. He, he did something yeah. wrong and he just, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. he was just too busy to think about it because he was preoccupied with other things and he was not part of my academic universe. Yes. I, I know, as you said, it's not too much of an excuse, but at least it's an explanation. Well, at least he made it right, which is, which is, which is, you know, not, not, not actually a lot of people that are willing to, you know, to admit that they made a, made a mistake and try to exactly. correct it, which is, a, which is, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a good thing on his part. Yeah. Exactly. And my apologies to Jarvis Cocker. I don't know what happened. Because <laughs> yeah. they were big rivals, I remember. Yeah. I actually didn't know if I'm going to ask you, but now I do want to. You invest so much time writing about now this new book about Lennon's body. Like, do you personally, do you believe there is some kind of, I don't know, I guess it's Gorbachev thing, right? Unknown Lennon or some, some version of that still that um, also, fall, you know, considering that the body is still there and, um, I don't know, the statue's not toppled. Do you think there's something that can be an ideal to people to some, of some sorts that uh, can survive now, the, whatever it is happening, some kind of restoration? But basically, can the Lennon, <laughs> some kind of non Lennon? You know, no, 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 yeah, not physically, but like, yes. you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. ideological, I don't know what's, what would be the word. Politically, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that there is a, an attempt um, uh, among the progressive and left philosophy mm-hmm. in the world, uh, including very serious philosophy, like uh, people like uh, Alain Badiou in France, and uh, of course uh, Michael Hart and uh, Antonio Negri, to uh, to read Lenin again seriously from the position which is not uh, shaped by the late Soviet ideology which completely distorted Lenin for its purposes, right? Uh, not completely, but partially distorted mm-hmm. Lenin. So I'm, I'm, I think Lenin, as an as a intellectual analyst of the particular stage in the development of capitalism in the early 20th century, and as more general voice about uh, you know, capitalism and what can follow it, remains very relevant. Not all of it, of Lenin, but some of his theoretical works. And I'm sure they will be read again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that because I'm a Leninist. I'm not a Leninist, but I, uh, I kind of lean towards the left. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I, I'm absolutely sure that the problems of liberal democracy and capitalism, which we mentioned, by the way, we should not talk about liberal democracy without mentioning capitalism because they are really one and the same. Mm-hmm. They're completely united. It's this liberal market democracy. The, 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 there are problems in it which I don't think 
it can solve by using its own principles. I mean, there are liberal thinkers and historians, like one of them is Stephen Kotkin, who writes about the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. a great historian from Princeton. He believes, and I heard many times from his lectures, that uh, the American system has enough uh, pr- principles within it to fix all the problems which it has, including homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that. I think this is an ideological position which I actually don't share. I think there are problems which this system uh, creates as part of the normal functioning of the system. So, you know, a certain socialist term, even on the ground, on the, in terms of uh, someone like a left liberal, like uh, like um, um, Sanders, right, mm-hmm. Sanders and, uh, is going to happen in this country, and it's already happening with a new generation. And um, so analysts and philosophers like Lenin will be important. They are not going to be the only ones. It's not, not going to be a Leninist system. Mm-hmm. But to, to completely discard Lenin is just this ideologue, like this Jesus or mm-hmm. this Stalinist, this dictator, as he's been often called, I think it is wrong. Uh, he's, I mean, he has some dictatorial things about him, and uh, he did help me to create Stalinism without necessarily wanting it to happen. But he was also a very important Marxist philosopher, and uh, that will remain the fact. And I think it will become more important with time. So he will not be completely discarded, uh, or completely thrown off the, the, what's it called, the battleship of history. Yeah. So from that point of view, I, I I don't know if I am answering your question. No, I think, no, you are. Yeah, you are. I th- yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I agree. I don't know at least. Do you, actually, you know, as a, just a pure like, as your because you're a professor, you know, and since we have you on, on the line here, um, and and talking about Lenin, you know, because so much of you know, it's kind of an annoying part of you know reading about any any Soviet history, right? Especially if you read, it's always politicized, and it's always hard to understand if you're, um, you know, you kind of almost have to. Read the the book and understand the ideology of the of the historian writing it and um, mm-hmm. and and it's, so it's always it's always I mean all history is written that way obviously but you know obviously the, the like biographies of Lenin or Stalin or, I mean have, are you know even more so kind of contaminated by this by this sort of really rigid mm-hmm. ideological line and I mean do, would you recommend um, could you recommend or maybe one doesn't even exist uh, like a good a balanced biography of Lenin. Um, sp- because I've I've kind of only read one that I that I like. Shub, yeah, right? it's an old one. It's, it's by um, the guy uh, 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 a guy named David Shub. Um, it was published, I think, originally in the, in the forties. Because he he was a he was a he was a Menshevik, uh, <laughs> and he was sort of you know exiled. He, uh, he from you know, from 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 Russia, yeah. and, and he lived in New York. He was sort of a socialist. But um, yeah, do you do you know do you know one? Does one exist? I mean, there are many biographies. I I was trying to avoid. Are relying too much on those in, mm-hmm. my, in this yeah. book, which I'm writing. Um, I mean, there was this not a biography, but I guess the uh, book about the last years of Lenin, Lenin's last struggle. It's called by Moshe Lewin, mm-hmm. Lewin, L-E-W-I-N, great historian, which is quite interesting, I think, and um, quite balanced. Uh, so I would recommend that. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I really yeah. don't want to. Yeah. I yeah, I, I'd, I'd rather not single out something, because I also find um, the dominant tone is a little bit politicized, which is understandable, right? It's very difficult to actually write a biography of Lenin 
from the period from the Soviet period, even if it's written in the West or in the earliest post-Soviet period. I think a biography of Lenin, which would think about the communist projects in a very balanced way, which which would have to be part of the biography, needs to be written with a certain distance from the uh, current situation in the world. Yeah, yeah, from like the have this uh, tendency to basically limit that historical period to a fight between democracy and authoritarianism, which is a very limited uh, reductionist way of seeing it. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, a kind of uh, a kind of uh, prism through which one brackets out the word capitalism altogether. It's democracy, authoritarianism, and that's you know it's, it's a very limited view. So I think. Um, yeah, I, I kind of think it probably is not quite there yet. I mean, it's pretty incredible if you come to think of it, you know, that, I mean, that there is not a, a good, you know, I mean, somewhat balanced objective where, you know, I mean, these these words, again, mean, you know, mean, mean, mean different there things to different people. There was an attempt in Russian from like maybe four years ago, you know, Lev Danilkin did a biography, yeah, yeah. but I, I don't know, it's very quite questionable, it was hard for me to read. Just traveling uh, it, it, everywhere. Yeah. It also has this ironic undertone, yes. which I, irritates me. It's an interesting book, yeah, but it's it it, it has an agenda. There's a, yeah. So for to budding to budding historians, you know, here we go. There's we, there's a, there's a, there's a market opening for a, talk about liberal market mm-hmm. democracy. Yeah. There's a market opening for a good Lenin biography. Wait, wait, when is your book coming out? Yeah, I, I've been so late with it, and uh, I just. Have been derailed a little bit by these events again, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I'm I'm trying to finish the actual manuscript um, by the fall, and this year, and uh, then it will have to go to the readers and revisions and everything. So uh, my publishers at Princeton and I decided that I will try to have it out by the 100th anniversary of Lenin's bombing, which is 19 well to. Th- 2024. Uh, kind of a good no, it's perfect. A good finish yes. line to look forward good, to. Yeah. Yeah. It was supposed to be out already, but since I'm so late, then maybe that is a good finish line. So right. that's, that's the idea now, 2024. I don't know whether I will succeed, but I'm, I'm trying. No, I'm, yeah, it's, I'm yeah, looking, we're, we're looking waiting forward. For the, yeah, we're looking forward to the book because, again, like I said, it's very difficult to find anything that's, especially because it's going to incorporate elements of Elena's biography, it's, it seems like. So, um, oh, yeah. by the way, yeah. were you still living in Russia when uh, Koryakin's Lenin's Mushroom um, sort of mystification was aired on TV? Did you, did you see it back there? Mm-hmm. That was yeah. That was my first year at graduate school in the U.S. But I was actually in Saint Petersburg at the, at the time when it happened. So you saw it, uh, yeah. Because I traveled to Saint Petersburg uh, uh, every year in the winter break and in mm-hmm. the summer break, and it happened yeah, yeah when I was in Saint Petersburg. Yeah, and I also knew Kuryakin personally oh, wow. quite well. So when it happened, I actually spoke with him about it. Could you tell us a little bit about it? I was so obsessed with that. Actually, I have an article about it. I don't know if oh, you really? saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called uh, A Parasite from Outer Space. <laughs> uh, okay. You know, I have an, just a little plug. I have, a like most scholars, an academia.edu uh-huh. uh, page. And uh, uh-huh. most of my work is there, and that article is there. We'll as link well. to it. It's yeah, we'll link to it. Yeah, yeah. We'll find you, I'm sure. Yeah. But but in short, if yeah. you were friendly to Karahin, what was um, I don't know? What did he tell you? I was interested in his method because he um, he was like the whole idea of Stubb, um, which I I'm writing about, a, a kind of ironic um, 
um, engagement with some political uh, concept or symbol or idea, which is not simply uh, undermining it, subverting it, right, as some irony does, but also uh, creates a very supportive sort of attitude towards it. It's a combination of subversion and support, to the extent that sometimes it's important, impossible to say whether it, this is ridicule or this is actually a very genuine, very earnest um, re- reproduction of the idea. And so still the kind of balances between these two and a very interesting genre, which em- emerged in the 70s in the Soviet Union. And Korykin was a master of that. But he was also doing that in every interaction. So it wasn't just when he was, for example, talking about Lenin on TV, Mm -hmm. that you couldn't tell whether he's been serious or ironic or both. But also when uh, you, like when I interacted with him, we were, you know, I was, I cannot say that I was his close, close friend, but I I met him a lot and we would, you know, spend time in the coffee shop. I would interview him. Uh, I was also managing a rock band in St. Petersburg at the time called Davia, just before my graduate school, uh, from 86 to 1990, I was the manager. And he played with us, he he came to our rehearsals a lot, so I met him in that context a lot. Anyway, um, so when I spoke with him about his method, like his, because he was a musician, but Mm -hmm. he was also a public figure who made a lot of statements and who, you know, like in, with his TV program, his method of dealing with political ideology, how he, uh, you know, in, introduced this uh, stop, this uh, over-identifying irony. And um, in the beginning of our conversation about this particular case, he continued in the same kind of role of being this stop artist. It was almost impossible to find anything from him. But then... If you talk to him long enough, then a lot of the ideas which were quite serious would come out. And so we discussed, he, he started calling himself a parasite. A parasite in the sense that you, a parasite is, not, a parasite not as a bad derogatory term, mm-hmm. but as a kind of medical term, right? When a parasite basically inhabits the body of uh, the host body mm-hmm. and teaches that body to uh, incorporate the parasite into its system, right? And as a result, the system uh, of, of the host changes right. the process. So parasite is more powerful. Uh, and that's, or, or, or maybe they are both equally powerful, but they, they just both create this kind of, um, what's the term? Symbiosis, the, uh, yeah. Symbiosis, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, right? Uh, so it's not that the parasite necessarily overpowers, but in the process, also, the system might, as you were saying, start looking at, at, at itself through the eyes of the parasite. It kind of provides it with a new perspective on itself. Right. And that's what he was doing. And so he was saying that I'm a parasite. And it so happens that there was a very interesting uh, political philosophy written about this concept of the parasite mm-hmm. by Michel Serre, a French philosopher. And I instantly connected to that. And I read his book uh, mm-hmm. very carefully. And I understood a lot of stuff about Koryokhin by going to that philosophy. And then I talked to him again. So that piece, uh, A Parasite from Outer Space, that's uh, what some people called Koryokhin. Parasit is at Kosmosa. It's really cool. Um, so I basically tried to understand Koryokhin, knowing him and knowing his 
not only his performances in public, but also his conversations in private, trying to understand what he was trying to do mm-hmm. uh, towards any system. He was not anti-Soviet. He was just, he saw every position as ideological and therefore as worthy of uh, critical engagement with any position at all. And <laughs> so he was always trying to triangulate and it was very, you know, completely fascinating right. to be around him. Very yeah, like subversive, so right? This is good. Both subversive and and uh, affirmative as well. Mm-hmm. As I said, he was like, like balancing between those positions. Interesting. Like for example, he was one of the first people to um, pop, to popularize Dugin, who is now this very right wing, yeah, Putinist imperialist philosopher, Eurasianist, you know, who actually really uh, has been loud uh, during this war in Ukraine. Um, and uh, it, it's like this campaign completely unf- affirms everything he has been saying for years. And he was originally, in the last 10 years, he was kind of considered to be relatively irrelevant in the Russian politics. And now people are saying that maybe he's much more relevant than we thought. But anyway, Kodekin engaged with him, and it's not like he was a supporter of Dugin, but he popularized him in this still kind of way. I write about that in this um, mm-hmm. article. He did this already in the mid '90s, which is you know a long time ago. He noticed Dugin, and he noticed this Eurasianist philosophy then, and he understood it is going to be very important for Russia for this conservative turn. So Kurekin understood it right away. Mm-hmm. That's why he engaged with it. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. Uh, specifically, Lenin mushroom. I mean, I, I'll read your paper and link to it. But uh, so that one was done as a, an experiment, mostly, right? Because I, 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 from what I understood and asked around, like I think a lot of people believed it because they didn't know how Karakin looks. They didn't recognize him. It seemed legit, right? Right, right. I write about this at length. The, the thing uh, okay. is, uh, basically, Karakin recognized that at the very end of Soviet history uh, is the moment when all its foundational s- symbolism inverts. He noticed that moment. He noticed how Lenin is suddenly a figure which is in the focus and is attacked. Mm-hmm. And he recognized it as not simply a new openness which uh, allowed for the voices which always existed but used to be suppressed. Mm-hmm. Now suddenly they are uh, allowed to attack Lenin. He recognized that there is an inversion. People who were never thinking of attacking Lenin now suddenly attacking him. And there, were, there was this extreme... Um, spread of articles, you know, talking about Lenin as something very problematic. Like he had uh, certain diseases, uh, he had some problems when he was a child, he was (laughs) of of different problematic ethnic origins, he had Chuvash, Mongol, Buryat, he was a Jew, all those articles, (laughs) right? Kalmyk, and so Kudekin said actually he was a mushroom. So he actually <laughs> took that to and, extreme, and took yeah. it to the extreme. Right. And so he was basically with this with this hoax, he was actually demonstrating to everyone what was happening that, that the country is going through this inversion and rupture. Right. So he, and actually, a lot of people, when they realized it was a hoax, they say said later that for me, the end of Soviet Union, what that was that program. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So in a, in a way, he was like a really good social scientist. He took something and recognized it mm-hmm. as the historic event, as a watershed. And he demonstrated it in a very uh, kind of grotesque way. 
it wasn't so much about Lenin. It was about the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. And, and it wasn't somehow because of the moment, like it was 91, it wasn't, he somehow managed to, um, you know, TV people to let him do it, right? That's, that, that doesn't... No, it was all, all, also that, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That moment, I call it the open, when the previous regime is crumbling and therefore there's no... The system of control and mm -hmm. the system of ideological supervision is actually being deconstructed very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the new one is not in place yet. All those marketing rules that you cannot, that you have to think about ratings and so forth. Like it's impossible to have right. this host now. Today. Of course, yeah. It would be impossible a year previously. But he found the exact right moment of a couple of years when that was possible. That's genius. I actually write about this at length in this article. If you read the article, I analyze all the conditions which made it possible. All oh, wow. right, all right. Well, uh, I'll the, definitely the, read. The, yeah. the, those conditions don't explain why he did it. They explain why uh, he was able to do it. Mm -hmm. But why he did it, as I said, he was showing some, this symptom, right? He was showing, look, this kind of uh, attack on Lenin, what's happening to Lenin today, is actually a symptom of a complete rupture. It's not about Lenin, it's about something else. And he showed it. Right. Yeah. So this is what I talked to him about. And that's why he said, you know what, I'm a parasite. I'm entering the system and make the system look at itself. And it was really exactly precise, I think. He was doing it somewhat ironically when we spoke, but I kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And then he gave serious and said, well, this is what I'm doing. And he actually thanked me for allowing himself to look at what he's doing because I was trying to be an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, it's pretty funny because there's multiple levels here. So you as the anthropologist is also are also being parasitic on him. And so... And, you know, by entering his... Well, it, it's not the same as parasitic, because parasitic, uh, a parasite doesn't tell you what it's doing. A parasite enters the system, and the system ha is forced to reorganize itself without knowing it, right? Uh, an anthropologist is supposed, according to the kind of ethical principles of our discipline, to tell you, I'm an anthropologist, I'm trying to understand this, so let's talk about it. Which <laughs> gotcha. is what it's, I was doing. It's, so it's not quite parasitic, yeah. It's a parasite that comes with little like microaggression warnings, you know, on, on the cover. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Passive aggressive on a parasite, yeah. Yeah, exactly. but anyway, well, I don't know, I don't want to hold you for too much but longer. So thank you so much thanks for, for, thanks for, for talking joining to us. us. And, um, well, thank you guys, it was really fun. If we're all still alive uh, when your book comes out and uh, we'll, 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 we'll love to have you, you know, obviously on and talk about, you know, the hunt, the, the centennial uh, of Lenin's yeah. involvement and uh, preservation and, and the mm -hmm. book that, in your book that'll come out, so. And maybe we'll see you around since we're kind of yeah, in, in one in neighborhood. You know? It's funny how we all have to make this disclaimer because of this war, right? If we're all still alive. Yeah, right, no, well. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, Hopefully. yeah, it's, I, don't, I think we will be, unfortunately. We will be. Unfortunately, we, we, will, all, be. we all will yeah, be. Not, yeah, not yeah. in this season of the show, I yeah, feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, it also gives me more reason to finish this book. So, All right. We'll talk again. Okay, thank okay, you. Thank, thank you so much. Well, very good. Amen.